Facebook, Twitter, 24-7 news, talk radio, citizen journalism, fake news, real news. Audiences are drowning in an overwhelming overload of information. Clearly, a guidepost is needed to identify what is trustworthy and a reliable source of both news and information. Season 2 of the Delaware Humanities Podcast, A Matter of Facts, delves into this topic. This year, examining more closely popular sources of news and information. The A Matter of Facts Podcast is brought to you by Delaware Humanities, a state affiliate of the National Endowment for the Humanities. Its mission is to engage, educate, and inspire all Delawareans through cultural programming. We thank the Andrew W. Mellon Foundation for its generous support of this initiative and the Pulitzer Prizes for its partnership. A Matter of Facts is produced by Delaware Public Media, Delaware's source for NPR News. Thanks for joining us on the A Matter of Facts podcast. I'm your host, Tom Byrne. In this episode, we turn to an area that has garnered, I think it's fair to say, a little more interest in recent years, and that is fact-checking. Now, there are a variety of fact-checking websites available, such as Snopes and PolitiFact, as well as fact-checking done by various media outlets, both print and broadcast. But how did fact-checking get started? And what role does it play in helping people navigate the information they see daily in the news and on social media? To help us better understand fact-checking, we are joined on the podcast by Dr. Danigal Young, Associate Professor of Communication and Political Science at the University of Delaware and Distinguished Research Fellow at the Annenberg Public Policy Center at the University of Pennsylvania. She studies political satire, political media effects, the psychology of political humor, and the intersection of entertainment and information. She has also spent time specifically examining fact-checking. Dr. Young, thanks so much for being with us on the A Matter of Facts podcast. Thank you, Tom. Well, I feel like a discussion about fact-checking would have been one kind of conversation, let's say, four or five years ago, uh, and now is something completely different. Uh, is it possible to quantify the impact that the, the Trump presidency and, and this increased polarization in our country has had on, on fact-checking? That is a great observation. And I would say that there are a couple of factors at play that have shifted sort of the, the job of fact-checkers and the nature of the pursuit of fact-checking. One is the Trump presidency. However, you know, many of us in political communication see Trump's style of rhetoric as more of a symptom than as a causal agent in itself. There are other factors that are larger in terms of shaping public discourse. As you mentioned, political polarization, which has been on the rise, you know, since, especially since the 90s. Now, political polarization, we can talk about two different things. One is the, that the notion that the average position, platform position, of Democrats has moved slightly left, while the average position of Republicans has moved to the right. Um, what is more consequential in terms of our information space is the accompanying affective polarization, which means that starting at the level of elites and more now the level at the level of the citizenry, Democrats do not like Republicans and Republicans do not like Democrats. And so there's this affective or emotional dimension to it that really shapes how people respond to anything that comes out of the mouth or the fingertips of someone uh, on the other side of the aisle. I will add to that the changing media landscape where 
decentralized control over our information space through the internet and social media, where there are not those same sort of gatekeepers and professionalized individuals who determine, you know, what they play the role of arbiter of truth, right? What what is true and what is not? Right. That role has shifted so much that now in the, with the internet, everyone becomes their own gatekeeper. So all of these situations have sort of come together, including a lack of trust in government institutions, lack of trust in media, all of which contribute to this larger um, sort of infodemic, uh, as we might call it. So I want to delve into a number of those things that, that you mentioned. But before we do that, I do want to take a step back and just Talk a little bit about one thing that you did look at in your research into fact-checking, that is its history. Uh, and, and just tell us a little bit, if you can, just a thumbnail sketch perhaps of, of how fact-checking got started and, and what did it initially look like in its kind of original form? Yeah, so really when we're, when we're thinking about fact-checking as a sort of separate industry, right, like as a pursuit, because journalism in and of itself is fact-checking, Right. So journalists should be in there kind of calling out what is true and what is not. But through the 1980s, there was the sense that we were in this sea of he said, she said journalism that was coming about, where you would have two uh, competing claims that were being made by politicians. And a lot of reports in the news would sort of give airtime to both views. So there was this perception that we need to be able to engage in some kind of check on what is empirically true and what is empirically false. This was especially true coming out of the 1988 presidential campaign uh, between George Bush Sr. and Michael Dukakis, where there, a lot of the uh, Republican ads were sort of pushing the envelope in terms of um, advancing falsehoods and, you know, information that you might not call a lie, but that was deliberately misleading. And so some of the folks who were at the helm here looking at this were Kathleen Hall Jameson from the Annenberg Public Policy Center, who had been studying political ads at the time. And she advocated putting together something that was like an ad watch, where perhaps television news journalists could, could talk about the claims that were being made in political ads but do so in a way that didn't reinforce the false claims themselves. And that still today is the biggest conundrum with dealing with lies from elites, is how do you cover those claims, correct them without reinforcing them in the process? So Jameson had suggested this visual trick where you put a little sort of a, a television within the television to basically show that we are currently examining a political ad that you may have seen on TV. We're not rebroadcasting it in its entirety. We're just putting it here to be able to pull it apart and check the claims within it. Um, some of her pursuits later morphed into a project that she launched with Brooks Jackson. Um, that is factcheck.org, which still is in the business today, along with many other um, nonpartisan fact-checking organizations. And their work has become very challenging. <laughs> oh, I was going to say, I mean, if, before we kind of get into the, the challenges that have arisen, how effective was that model back then in the in the late 80s into the 90s before we kind of reach what, what we'll talk about next is this more digital internet age? So the sense was that it did 
it did provide viewers with an opportunity to have the corrective information, as we call it. And what we what we find, generally speaking, I'm trying to like it's because there's so much research on this. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm trying to boil it down. Where where we find that there are benefits to citizens is with specific empirical claims. If you show someone corrective information and you make sure that you tell what is true, then say, here's the false thing, and then once again, tell what is true. And if you're doing it in the context of something that is tangible and specific, policy details, statistics, numbers, things like that, you really do find a little bit of movement on those underlying beliefs and the knowledge. So that's kind of like what people have called the, the, that's what people kind of call like the sandwich model, right? Where you do truth, falsehood, truth, and you you kind of put it together in a sandwich for people. Exactly. And um, Jay Rosen from NYU has been doing a great job sort of talking about this as a really easy, straightforward tactic that avoids some of the pitfalls of other methods, which you might have great intentions and you might be trying to fact check something, but you could inadvertently reinforce the false claim just by virtue of the fact that you're not adequately sandwiching it in between the two truth pieces of bread. Um, so so when, we, when we're talking about those really tangible claims, you can understand how, yeah, it would be easy then to correct that and say, you know what, no, the tax cut is not this amount. It's this amount. It doesn't go to this destination. It goes to that destination. Where we do not find a lot of movement is in how those corrected facts or those now updated beliefs then go on to update our overall evaluations of candidates. That's something that we have just, we've just been racking our brains about because you can correct information but that's not necessarily going to change how people think about candidates or about, you know, global policy. So, and, and where a lot of this research is heading is to this idea that perhaps what we really need to be thinking about is about our social identity, that people do not process the world like computers where they get information and then they update their algorithm based on that information. And now they have a changed view of the world. We are not hyper-rational like that. Mm -hmm. Instead, we are incentivized to be social animals, to think of ourselves as members of groups. Now, because polarization is so strong and because partisan identity is so strong, those groups right now are largely Democrat, Republican. So what happens is you might find that you are able to update someone's tangible information about an issue. And you're like, oh, great. Okay, so now they're going to have a, quote, corrected attitude towards the candidate. No, they won't. They'll just say, well, okay, so this one thing isn't true, but it might as well be true. We find that a lot. The idea that, like, okay, now an individual has, they recognize the information is false, but they then discount that and they continue to either love their guy or hate the other guy or girl. Um, and that that has been a real stumbling block. And I was going to say, work. and I was going to say, I guess that that kind of brings us to the some of the challenges you're talking about, specifically the challenges of this digital era, the internet, social media. Uh, I, I imagine that that's that kind of plays into that social piece, right? The, the tribalization piece of this, that that people are in their little groups, and it's very easy on the internet, on social media, to stay in that group, right? One hundred percent. Now, now, what we're what you're talking about here is a concept of of echo chambers, right? The notion that yeah. 
People seek out information that supports what they already believe, and they avoid information that, you know, challenges their beliefs. What we have found is that, you know, it, when I say we, I mean my discipline. I'm not doing all of this. In fact, <laughs> there's a lot of people who are doing this. Um, echo chambers do not exist to the extent that we thought they would. So even in online spaces, even in social media, people are actually consuming some pieces of information that, you know, contradict their own viewpoint. Now, that being said, there are individuals for whom, like Facebook groups, like-minded groups of people on issues like, I don't know, um, these anti-vaccination movements. If you go into a Facebook group that's an anti-vaccination Facebook group, where everyone there shares your view, you are going to have a cultivated information ecosystem that is never going to challenge you. It's going to constantly reinforce your beliefs on that issue. And more importantly, it's going to give you a group of friends, a social group of people that you like and that you respect and that you want to share views with and share behaviors with. So for certain, in these certain enclaves, we, we cannot rule out the possibility that these dynamics are problematic. But for the majority of the public, right, for that big sort of group of us kind of in the middle, we still, no matter what, we still are exposed to information that contradicts our own pre-existing view. So is there is there a way for fact checker fact checkers, fact checking sites to to attack that? Um, yeah. I, obviously, probably not very easily, but is is there any opening for them to make inroads? in those type of situations? Well, if what we're talking about is really more about the social dynamics and wanting to be part of a group and wanting to sort of feel respected and liked and have status, um, it, it's a whole different calculus in terms of how we would engage in correcting those misperceptions, right? Because now it's not like if we just educate people on the factual matters of the day, they will update their views. It doesn't work like that. Instead, this is why social psychologists are, are I want to say they're excited by this work, and I don't mean that they think it's a good thing. I mean that there's opportunities here to integrate a lot of very cool social psychological theory because it's not just about the information. It's about people. It's about relationships. So in terms of where this research is going, it's going into this direction of understanding that we need individuals with competing views to be able to create inroads, relationships, trusting relationships, to be able to garner the trust of individuals and ask questions about why, you know, why is it that you want to think that this is true when it seems that this evidence suggests it's not? You know, are there reasons why? Does it make you feel good to have that? Like, I understand because there are some things that I hold that are untrue, and but it makes me feel good to believe they might be true. You know, so vulnerability and empathy and inroads, and most of all, the recognition that correctives really do need to come from trusted, loved friends, family, and network members, not from a clip on the internet or on television. Uh, there's one other challenge, I guess, in this digital age that I, that I wanted to bring up, and that is just the, the sheer volume of, of information including misinformation, disinformation, alternative facts, fake news, whatever you want to call it. 
is it difficult for fact-checking just to keep up anymore? And do people just become kind of numb to fact-checking when there's just this much of it needing to be done because there's this much information out there? Yes and yes. I don't know if you want more to that. Or <laughs> <laughs> well, if you want to elaborate a little it, bit. <laughs> yeah. So it is, it is, there is so much. There is, it's just a fire hose of, of noise. And so, you know, if you start thinking about it like, okay, fact checkers, we need to police every claim on the internet. That's never going to happen. That's never going to work. One thing that I think that we've recognized over the last few years is that the role of mainstream journalists in calling out things that are false and reminding people of things that are true is paramount. Because while people do go on the internet and read all kinds of stuff, in terms of trusted sources, when you're talking about the legacy newspapers, when you're talking about major networks, there's still a lot more trust in those media outlets. So there's a role to be played there in amplifying truth and calling out lies, um, lies or simply misinformation, right? There's also a possibility when you think about, um, when you talked about, are people just sort of getting numb to this? I think that's absolutely true. And that is where that social dimension then becomes paramount. Because if there really just is this fire hose of misinformation out there, we're not consuming everything and we're not we're not engaging with everything. Not everything is landing on a radar. So if we can find ways to encourage people to, you know, augment and, and amplify the information that is true within their trusted social networks, you know, there could be inroads there that would combat that sort of sense that the whole, we're just drowning in chaos. I do want to pick up one thing you talked about, and that is is what we call these things when we when we are doing the fact checking. Does it matter if we call them lies or misleading or false claims or unsubstantiated claims? Because we've heard a lot of discussion about that. Where well, why doesn't the media just call that a lie? Um, does that make a difference? Do you think? Yes, and I, I share this frustration as a citizen, but as someone who studies this, I do understand why journalists are reluctant to call things lies. Okay. Because as a citizen, you're looking at this and you're like, okay, here is this politician or elite who has said something that is untrue, and we know that they've done the political calculus, and that is why they're saying this thing that is not true, and we know that they know it's not true. Well, do I really know? As a citizen, I'm assuming this, right? But if you're a journalist and you're, you have to really stand by your words – are you ever going to be able to get in Donald Trump's mind to understand whether or not he believes the things he says? Right. Like, I would not want to make that wager. I wouldn't want to try to be a psychotherapist for an, an elite individual to try to understand if they truly believe the things they're saying. If they believe it, technically, it does not constitute a lie. It constitutes a falsehood. Right. And that's when we talk about misinformation. Disinformation is information that has been deliberately designed to deceive. So if you cannot prove that the source of that information is doing it deliberately and strategically to deceive, you can't call it disinformation. You call it misinformation. And that's, those are sort of the semantics surrounding this issue. Which, of course, can be very frustrating for, as you said, the, the average person. I'm also curious, and we, I guess we've talked a little bit about this, but I, I guess I want to just ask you know, in a little more focused way. 
you know, how much do you feel that fact checking um, in some ways almost plays into our polarized nation? I mean, does the potential for someone to take a fact check and say, aha, you're lying, right? Uh, serve as fuel perhaps even for that polarization. Yeah, that is a great point. Um, there are uh, several scholars who have studied this, sort of the question about is polarization really enhanced when people fact check other people? And who is doing that? Who, who is sending someone that email that says, hey, just so you know, this has been shown to be untrue. And here's the link to factcheck.org. Well, what, where it gets really tricky is especially if you're in a public space, like online, if you're on Facebook and somebody posts something and then you say something in reply publicly and say, hey, this is not true, see here. Well, now what you've done is you have violated that person's ability to sort of save face because you've called them out publicly. And now the inclination as a threatened animal, a threatened animal individual is to double down and be angry. So you got to think, what is your long game here? Is your long game to actually get the person to update their belief system and to see the issue accurately? Or is your are you just playing a status game where you're trying to prove that you're better than that person? If you're just trying to prove you're better than them and you don't care that they get mad and double down, okay, go ahead, publicly call them out, right? But that's not going to help us in terms of the health of democracy. What might help, is a private text message to that person, a private email that says, hey, just, you know, love catching up with you on Facebook. I just wanted to talk to you a little bit about this thing that you shared. Don't want to put it out there publicly, you know, but here's some, you know, information that you might want to take a look at. Now, is that going to update their view? It has a higher likelihood of getting them to reconsider their beliefs than calling them out and shaming them and embarrassing them. We'd like to end this podcast by asking each of our guests the same question, and that is, where do you get your news on a daily basis? What are your favorite news sources? Uh, where, where do you go to, to get the, the facts that you're looking for? Yeah, well, I am, I'm the boring person who is, you know, I stick with my legacy media. So I have subscriptions to the Washington Post and the New York Times, and I'm a supporting member of my NPR station. I'm, I'm up outside of Philly, so I'm a WHYY supporter. And those are my go-to all the time. I'm also on Twitter where I follow a lot of journalists, and I enjoy that because they are not just sharing the stories they've written, but also the sort of behind-the-scenes thoughts about those stories. Um, I think that it can be really overwhelming for folks to think about how where they should be consuming news. I would encourage people to find sources that they really enjoy and that they can look forward to. I also will listen to the New York Times Daily podcast on my morning walk with my dog. And, you know, find those sources that are trustworthy, incredible sources. The legacy outlets are, are great. And um, those that you can really look forward to. Dr. Danigal Young, Associate Professor of Communication at the University of Delaware and Distinguished Research Fellow with the Annenberg Public Policy Center at the University of Pennsylvania. Thank you so much for joining us on this edition of the A Matter of Facts podcast. Thank you so much, Tom. Thanks for listening to this episode of the A Matter of Facts podcast. The A Matter of Facts podcast is brought to you by Delaware Humanities, a state program of the National Endowment for the Humanities. 
Its mission is to engage, educate, and inspire all Delawareans through cultural programming. We thank the Andrew W. Mellon Foundation for its generous support of this initiative and the Pulitzer Prizes for its partnership. A Matter of Facts is produced by Delaware Public Media, Delaware's source for NPR News. Thank you.